Welcome to the Horsewise podcast with Lynn Reardon, where we share stories of horses and people and what they teach each other. On today's episode, we have an encore interview with Dr. Janet Jones, author of Horse Brain, Human Brain. I hope you enjoy the show and have a wonderful day. Hi, everyone. I'm Lynn Reardon, the host of the podcast and head coach at Horsewise. For this episode, I thought it would be fun to go back and look at 2021 and see what some of the most popular podcasts were. And not surprisingly, the number one podcast episode last year in terms of number of downloads and listeners was Dr. Janet Jones, the author of Horse Brain, Human Brain. We had Dr. Jones come back a second time in 2021 in November, but it was never recorded on this public podcast. We had gotten kind of behind schedule with the holidays, and we'd also opened it up to the Horsewise Scholars podcast study group. So we'd had a lot of the information already posted in that private group. But today I wanted to bring it forward and have everyone listen to the scholars as they asked Dr. Jones some very specific questions about the book. In Horsewise Scholars, we pick a horsemanship topic each month to study, and in November, Dr. Jones's book was again the topic of study for the group. We were really excited to study and also get the opportunity to ask more questions of Dr. Jones about her book specifically. So without further ado, here is the interview with Dr. Janet Jones with the questions being asked by the Horsewise Scholars group. I hope you enjoy the interview as much as we did. So Dr. Jones, welcome again to the Horsewise podcast. We really appreciate you joining us. Uh, This is a special edition for our Horsewise Scholars podcast study group. They study a horsemanship topic every month, and we chose your book for this month. So it was the November Horse Brain, Human Brain Extravaganza. And so our scholars here have sent me a bunch of questions and that I'm going to read and go over with you. And then we also have some folks who are on the, who are on the, you know, on the call now with us. And I'm just letting everyone know that if at the end of this, if we have more time for Q&A and we go ahead and open it up, that you guys will be on the public podcast too. So have your best like speaking voice on. Um, so anyway, thank you again, Dr. Jones, for coming back. It's my pleasure to be here. And um, I want to thank you for selecting Horse Brain, Human Brain for November. And to all of you who are also here, thank you for reading it. It's obvious from looking at some of the questions that um, you've read it really carefully. And every author appreciates that so much. So thank you. And we have several people who who couldn't be here tonight because of holiday kind of plans Uh and everything. Um, And so this is for, for the podcast listeners on my public podcast, we're recording this the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. So several people were just tied up. It's a pretty solid sized group, about 20 people all together in the, in the podcast study group. And so, but I still got all of these enthused responses like, oh, please ask Dr. Jones this and please ask Dr. Jones that. So it really, I feel like the book has changed my perspective on so many things. And it's been a really valuable uh, contribution to the, to the entire field. So we all thank you for being a brain scientist and a horsewoman and a trainer. It's a rare combination. And <laughs> for also being a good writer, like you, the book is so well written. I commented on that in our first podcast episode that we did with you because it's so well written. I feel like it's very, 
very much accessible, all of the scientific information, yet it's very accurate and thorough. So again, I'm going to double commend you for that because I think it made it very accessible for so many people. Thank you. I'm glad. I, I'm, I'm glad that it comes across that way. I did try to, to do that. So. Okay, well, let's jump into the questions because I'm keeping an eye on the time. We don't want to keep you endlessly, right? So uh, the first question is, how does the horse perceive and express the difference between pain and stress from a neuroscience perspective? Um, a couple of different ways to answer that. Um, first, from the neuroscience perspective, Proprioceptors are those little receptor cells that we have all over our skin that you've been reading about here. Proprioceptors are actually able to pick up different signals depending on the type of touch. So for example, um, a proprioceptive cell or nerve can tell the brain the difference between a nice, gentle, loving touch on the neck as opposed to a harsher touch on the neck um, or the difference between a soft pat and a hard pat. Uh, so the, the, the receptor cells that pick up this information and transmit it to the brain are capable of picking up a range of um, very different kinds of signals and sending that information to the brain and saying, you know, not only did this touch occur on this particular location, but in addition, it was a really soft, gentle touch. And so horses can, um, their, their brains will, will learn to interpret the difference between all of these different touches. Uh, beyond that, there are visible signs and there are ways to test the distinction between pain and stress, which is an important distinction for us to be able to make. Um, stress is usually more obvious in a horse because it is linked to fear. So um, with stress, you generally see very similar um, signals to what the horse would show uh, under conditions of fear. The eyes will enlarge. Sometimes you will even see a little white in the eye, but that usually doesn't happen just with stress. It, it usually requires some pretty serious fear for that part to come out. But the eyes will widen, the tail will often lift. There's often swishing of the tail that has nothing to do with flies or you know, any obvious kind of issue. Um, the muscles in a stressful horse are usually taut in that very explosive kind of way. Um, I call it the impending explosion. <laughs> and we all know that. We all know that. Everybody on the, on the call is laughing right now. Like we're nodding. Like, oh, yes. <laughs> we all know the feeling. You know, you're riding along and all of a sudden that every muscle changes and you can feel that immediately and you know, okay, something's going to happen here. Um, so you get that kind of, th those kind of muscles um, and typically the head is high and the neck is usually fairly straight. So you, you, know, you have kind of an angle in the neck going up here as opposed to a curve in the neck or a lower neck. When 
you're looking at pain. Um, there are a couple of things that are very different with pain. Typically with pain, especially if it's chronic pain, the head will be low rather than high. And the neck will usually either be straight or canted downward a little bit like this, or maybe in an arc. But it won't usually be canted upward in that stressful motion that we see. And these are all um, signs that horses produce, not only when we're working with them, but if a horse is in pain or is stressed out, you can see these just from a distance. You can look at a horse uh, across a pasture and notice some of these different things, even when you're not interacting with the horse. The muscles tend to be tight, but not in a nervous explosive way. Often they feel tight to the touch, but they don't look quite so tight. Um, sometimes if there's a lot of pain, you will get a little bit of flinching in the horse when you first touch them. Uh, and, and that you don't have to have touched them on the location that is producing the pain. You could touch them anywhere. And you might get a little bit of a, a little bit of a kind of flinch with that. Another thing that happens uh, fairly frequently with pain is that horses' skin becomes sensitive. And so a lot of people who have horses in pain will report that the horse does not want to be groomed. Mm -hmm. He doesn't like the brush or you have to use a very soft brush mm -hmm. with this horse. So all of these are things to kind of look for. Um, and then it, as far as testing, if you think that your horse might be showing pain, but you're not sure, perhaps it could be stress or something else, you can always test for pain. And the best way to do this is usually to administer just a standard dose of butte for mm -hmm. a few days as a trial. And um, you can, you usually have to administer it for three or four days regularly in order for the horse to exhibit a difference. If this is just stress, then the butte is not going to help it. But if it's pain, then the butte should help it and those signs should go away. Um, I am definitely not a person who is interested in any way in putting horses on butte or banamine for the long term. But I am willing, and I have done this to great uh, effect, to um, just give them a trial of butte for uh, three or four days and see what happens. And at times it, it gives us a lot of information. For sure. And just to, you know, correlate that with my own experience. So most of my listeners know, and certainly the scholars know that one of my main, you know, endeavors is that I, I work with war horses, uh, thoroughbred race horses who run to an older age, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, oh, even yes. 14. And so that's through the charity that I work with called LOPE. And we've often done butte trials just for that because it can be very hard to tell with those horses. They're so used to running. Um, again, they're old. They're like older athletes. They're so right. just like human older athletes, like a certain amount of discomfort is just the norm. Like they don't even maybe perceive it. They can be quite stoic. 
but we'll notice like, well, is this a tension or is this a physical pain issue? And we will do in accordance, of course, with our vet's recommendation, a butte trial, just like you were suggesting. And it is very helpful for information. We also don't like to see horses on butte or banamine for the long term. That's not appropriate, um, but it can give really good information about what do we need to do long-term, particularly if, if a horse isn't perhaps showing obvious um, reactions in a flexion test, things like that. Like maybe there's very low grade, but it's not like clear cut that this would be causing that kind of discomfort. Maybe a standard back exam hasn't shown anything definitive and a butte trial can be really helpful to rule out, you know, something more specifically physical that would require more diagnostics at that point. So right. that makes sense to me. And then going down with this question a little bit more, um, you've already outlined how to detect the difference, which is great. Um, the person who submitted the question, she, her mare just had a surgery, ovarian surgery. And afterwards she was so, so struck by how relaxed her mare is. And she realized for a long time, the mare had been exhibiting kind of you know, signs of pain and stress. She was not doing anything behavioral, right? Necessarily, right. but there was just this kind of on again, off again, discomfort that they couldn't quite pinpoint. And ultimately they did diagnose that this was the issue. And so she was like, how could, I don't want to, I felt so, she felt so bad basically. Sure. She, sure. But, you know, um, one aspect of that, that's kind of similar to the aging athletic racehorses that you're talking about um, is the fact that not only does the horse get used to it, we get used to it. So mm -hmm. in the case of the person that you're talking about, whose mare had to have the ovarian surgery, um, of course, all of us would feel bad that we hadn't noticed these changes in our horse. But it would be very easy not to notice the change if it came on gradually. You know, and you see the horse every day, you work with the horse every day, there's no huge difference that suddenly occurs one day. Um, so I think that it, it, it can, we have to go a little bit easy on ourselves there because it is easy to um, miss something like that when you're working with a horse every single day and it's a gradual development of pain. Right, that makes sense, that makes sense. And it's just like too, like we, we don't notice maybe that, um, you know, like friends have, uh, maybe steadily lost weight. And then all of a sudden you notice about 10 pounds in, it's like, hey, did you lose weight? Because it had been really gradual. And then there's this sort of turning point visually. So that makes sense to me as well. Um, so really cool. Okay, so the next question that I'm going to ask is about calming signals. So the question was, um, is yawning a sign of being already relaxed or relaxing? Or is it wanting to relieve stress or both? depending on the situation? Well, I, I have to be a little bit contrary here because actually the answer is neither. Ah. Um, in humans, yawning is linked to anxiety. And yawning is a very deep behavior um, in evolution. It goes back millions and millions of years and it is seen um, in many, many different types of animals. Um, and so because it is such a deep behavior, it probably has a similar basis across mammals, at least. Um, so my, my um, best guess is that 
Horse yawning is also linked to anxiety. And instead of seeing it as a calming signal or, or even you know, the hope for, for more calm, um, it, it's probably really a sign that the horse is becoming fairly anxious. And so um, it's important you know, for us to identify various calming signals. One of the most important and the most obvious calming signals that you can feel immediately on a horse is the lowering of the head. So every time the head comes up, you're usually the horse is beginning to look around and think about other things and his attention is getting distracted and his neck is tightening up, his muscles are tightening up. As soon as the head drops back down, it doesn't have to go way down low, but as soon as it just you know, drops back into a comfortable position for the horse, that's usually a sign of, um, of calmness or a sign of relaxation that is coming back. So I often look for that in my own training. Well, and that leads me to a question because I do a fair amount of work with people and groundwork and also with obviously the war horses, we do that too. And I've often seen a scenario where we're working with a horse and he has a significant breakthrough. Um, not significant in the sense that he's gone, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm dying and now I feel like I'm not dying, but we're maybe, let's say, let's take the example of a war horse and we're asking the horse to maybe stretch his shoulder out and take a step with a front leg out into the side. Just a really basic first step like that. And some of them, they're very locked up in their shoulders. They're so yeah. used to kind of running, you know, with, with, their, yeah. with their shoulders up under their ears, like we all do. And so that movement sometimes when, when the horse realizes that they can actually move that way and that we're there to support them. And then they, they start to, of course, maybe bend and arc a little bit more. I've seen often with the war horses and with other horses I've worked with where there'll be that moment where they're like, whoa, and they kind of stand there head down, sleepy eyes, they're sort of processing, you can see it. And then they'll lick and chew and there'll be this moment and then they'll have a massive yawn. And it seems to be a signal of that was really important to me. Um, and they're yawning with their head down. So I'm really, I find what your answer really fascinating because it goes sort of, it, it seems to be different from how I would experience that kind of yawn in that specific scenario. Now I've also seen situations with, a, with horses where uh, one in particular, a few years ago I was working with, uh, they were free lunging and the, horse, and the horse was stressed and the horse started to yawn while it was trying to go around the round pen, which was a pretty startling, and that was clearly a stress response, so. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So it's interesting, I mean, you know, it, it's possible that yawning is used in a variety of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, you know, I, I it's just interesting to me that in humans, yawning is linked to anxiety fairly clearly. And there's good science on that. And so my best guess would be that that's how horses experience too. I haven't had that experience, Lynn, myself of, you know, seeing a horse. I, I know exactly what you mean when they kind of catch on to something and they, and, they, and they do relax and you can see all the other relaxation signals going on. And I just have not observed that where a horse yawned at the same time that those other things were going on. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And it, it might have something to do with the specific things that we do in the groundwork where we're really addressing maybe key muscle braces. And it's, it's mm -hmm. not every time, it's usually associated with something pretty significant that the horse has gone, 
that meant a lot to me. They've had a big release. Maybe it's a release that is, and by that, I mean the licking and the chewing and the lowering of the head. And then they'll, they'll just have this jaw expanding yawn. Sometimes the tongue will come out. And always when that happens, we end the session. Like even if it happened 10 minutes into the session, it's like, this was a big deal to that horse. We need to let him go soak on it is, right. is how we see it. So, so that's real. So I, what I'll have to do is uh, do a video for you and send it to you of because that comes up fairly often and I often record my sessions and then I can yeah. send it to you and then you could see that from a, see what your perspective on that would be. So please do. Yeah, that'd be great. We'd love to involve you more. So that's so awesome that you would be up for that. Okay, so I'm keeping an eye on the time because it's really easy to talk to Dr. Jones forever. So um, I'm going to go on to the next thing. Um, so I'm not sure how to pronounce this word. Um, it's, what's the, the homunculus. key? The, say that again. The homunculus. The homunculus. So what are the key differences between the equine and human homunculus in terms of sensitivity areas? And I wanted to say that this question is from one of the scholars who couldn't be here tonight, but he is an, uh, a human chiropractor and he practices a very specific specialty in chiropractic. And, uh, and he's a horse novice. He's gonna be getting his first horse soon, but he's joined scholars and is studying because he wants to understand better. And he was like, ah, oh, I find this really interesting. Can you ask that question of Dr. Jones? So, okay. Well, um, just to clarify, maybe for, there might be some people who haven't heard of a homunculus before. It is kind of an unusual thing. Um, uh, a homunculus refers to the fact that certain areas on the body are more sensitive than other areas. And those highly sensitive areas take up more brain tissue than, least, than less sensitive areas do. And um, so for example, in humans, our fingertips are quite sensitive and um, Inside of our brains, there's actually been mapping that has been done to show the exact areas of the human brain that pick up signals about a touch or something on a human fingertip. And there's a lot of brain tissue there compared to, say, something like your back. Mm -hmm. And your back, you know, is a whole lot bigger than your fingertips, but not inside your brain. So the homunculus refers to this notion that... Um, that, that we're talking about the amount of brain tissue that is devoted to a particular location. And um, in humans, the homunculus has been mapped. We have accurate scientific information about the amount of um, brain tissue that is connected to each different area of the human body. And we even know where in the somatosensory cortex, um, that extra brain tissue is located for different areas of the body. To get then to um, your student's question, um, the equine homunculus has not been mapped. We have no idea about that yet. Um, this book is the first ever publication of even the location of the somatosensory cortex, oh. just the general chunk of brain that is the somatosensory cortex in the horse. And um, with the help of a veterinary neurologist, she and I had to extrapolate that location from brain scans of sheep 
Wow. Now, some of you might immediately think, well, wait a minute, sheep, you know, we're interested <laughs> in horses. We don't, we don't want to be looking at sheep. But it turns out that sheep brains are more similar in anatomy to horse brains than any other mammal. So we feel really confident that we are correct in identifying the location of the general somatosensory cortex. Uh, but there is no mapping for the, for the you know, individual spots within that cortex at this time. And I should probably, it's, maybe this is a good place for me to point out that um, the majority of the content in my book uh, about horse brains is very, very new. Um, I, the first ever MRI image of a horse brain was published in 2019. And I had already written more than half of the book at that time. Wow. And so a lot of this material is just now beginning to really, you know, people, scientists are starting to really delve into this. And the reason, of course, as all of you know, because I, I've mentioned it in the book, the reason is that horses are extremely difficult to study scientifically. You know, you have to house them in a lab of yes. some kind. They take up tremendous amounts of space. They're expensive to feed and care for. They require knowledgeable care. You can't just go out and hire, you know, a freshman college student to come and feed them. You, you have to have somebody who really knows horses. And so all of those things have set horses behind quite a bit on um, our ability to do research and find out more about them. That makes sense. And that's why from my perspective, your book was such a powerful impact because just even on these basic, I mean, it's not basic, but these kind of key areas that we've known in people for so long that it's not easy. Like you said, it's not easy to scan horses. They're giant with massive amounts of tissue. They don't yeah. stand still very well. No. And um, no, and it's expensive. Like, it's not like you're going to do a fully detailed necropsy that includes all of this too. I mean, this is very difficult to ascertain. So, and also from my perspective, what was super fascinating, I mean, the whole book was fascinating, but particularly how all of the things that I had um, been taught or came to understand through this approach to horsemanship that we all practice and is putting the horse first and really trying to understand from the horse's perspective, how they learn, how, you know, for example, horses, you know, they don't plot against us, all these things that are part of the horsemanship philosophy that, you know, I practice. And of course I'm learning more about every day. Um, but your book was really like, here's the actual neuroscience behind that, but that was such a huge breakthrough and it made so much sense. You know, horses are, they are so united in mind and body so much more than we are. And so I just, it makes sense to me that this is so new. And um, when uh, the student who's the chiropractor asked that question, I'm like, that is such a, that's such a question that he would ask because he's so technical himself. Uh -huh. And so I think that's really cool how much even someone who's a horse novice, but who's also somewhat, you know, in, in a, well, very much in the field that is related to sensation in the brain. Cause he's all yeah. that. He, he, he just, he's immediately like goes right there. Like, this is so fascinating to him. Very cool. Okay, so let's go to the next question, which is, 
What are your thoughts on horses' emotions, the quality of their memories and their sense of self? The student says she knows there have been studies on horses having, having good facial recognition on humans, for humans, and recognizing emotions on human faces. But she's curious about the, the neuroscience behind those emotions, the memories, and their sense of self. Right. Um, horses do have excellent facial recognition for humans. And not only do they recognize emotions on human faces, they also recognize emotions on equine faces. Um, so this is, this is a, uh, something that horses use quite a bit. Um, the state of the science on horse brains has not caught up to the other two parts of this student's questions. Um, the quality of their memories, well, well, let me back up a bit. Horses clearly do have emotions, as I mentioned in the book. Fear mm -hmm. would be the primary emotion. There's nobody who works with horses on a regular basis who would ever say that horses do not experience fear. Um, it's very, very uh, clear. And we have scientific knowledge of that in addition to just the anecdotal um, ability to work with horses for 50 or 60 years and know that. I mean, you could work with them for 50 or 60 months. And know <laughs> 50 or 60 yeah. minutes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it doesn't take long no. to see that, that there's definitely a, a component of fear. Um, as far as quality of memories, we don't really know anything about that yet. I think that probably quality of memories is going to depend a lot on consciousness. And um, I doubt that horses have any form of consciousness that is the same as ours. Sure. They might have yeah. some other form, but I don't think that they have. It, it makes no sense, given the anatomy and physiology of their brains, that horses would have a running commentary inside their heads like we have when we are silent and we're sitting in a situation and yet we are aware of what's going on to the point that our minds are, are kind of carrying on a whole little narrative mm -hmm. about what's going on in this situation, I would be very surprised if we will ever learn that horses um, have a running commentary like that. Um, the, uh, and uh, the sense of self, nobody knows about that right now. Um, my opinion, and that's all I can offer here is just my personal opinion. I think it is very doubtful that horses have a sense of self. So, but all, all I can say at this point is just my opinion on that. And hopefully, you know, I've, I've really been trying to encourage a lot of people in the veterinary world to answer some of these questions and start doing more research on a lot of this. And they're very keen. They're, they're really very keen. I, um, I teach um, a large animal applied behavior class. Actually, I co-teach it mm -hmm. at Colorado State University. Um, to, and it's required of all of their veterinary students. And so I've really been trying to um, show them a lot of these empirical questions and try to get some of them interested in going into the research side of veterinary science. That would be that would be great to see this sort of open up a whole field. And we have someone who just joined here. I think it's Joy. And Joy, if you can mute yourself, I think as you're trying to connect, um, you're creating some static by accident. 
So if you can hear me, go ahead and mute yourself. And uh, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get, you can ask questions in the chat, Joy, if you need to, but something's going a little, a little awry with your audio connection. So, and uh, I think it would be fascinating to see that in the veterinary science field, I would think that there's a, that there would probably be a broad interest if, if it were encouraged in the, in the industry and in the field, you know, so, you know, the more traditional way to, you know, gain recognition in the field would be to focus on the physical research on sports injuries on, you know, physiology, but this, I think, I think certainly the majority of horse owners would be fascinated to understand this aspect better. And I'm sure it would be very hard to, to compile a study that would be scientifically accurate because it's not like horses can fill out questionnaires about their sense of self. We would have to create like a whole, a whole way of figuring out how to ascertain what, what a data point would be with that. Like how could a horse well, demonstrate that? Yeah, that's a really good point because the fact of the matter is that even in human brain science, we have a lot more questions and answers when it comes to sense of self. So it's, it's difficult to study even in humans and, um, and there's a lot of uncertainty in the research that, that we have at this point. So, yeah, but you never know. There might be some day when we can get to that point. And it would be very interesting. And, and I would guess that your book would, have be, would be a springboard for that. That that would be, so. yeah, that would be like kind of a really cool outcome. I feel like a springboard for this next sort of phase yeah. of equine research. Yeah, well, you know, the, these veterinary students are really... I think genuinely interested in a lot of this. And so already it's kind of having that effect. And it's been wonderful that, you know, the, the faculty at Colorado State University Veterinary School have been inviting me up there um, for three or four semesters so far. And it's been really helpful. And we plan to continue to do this. So I'm I'm really encouraged just by that that yeah. um, Definitely. I think they're really interested in it. And I think that there will be more studies in the future because of that. That makes a lot of sense. And it's exciting too. Good. And uh, yeah. And so I'm going to go on to the next question here really quickly. Um, a student would like your thoughts on when a horse is saying no to a request, like flat out no to request to a request versus I don't understand I'm stuck or I don't think I can I can do that, what you've asked. So any thoughts on that, Dr. Jones? Yeah, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Okay, good. I thought it was a great well, question, yeah. Okay, so I think this is an extremely important question because we humans make mistakes all the time on this when we're working with our horses. And I have seen those mistakes through my whole lifetime working with horses and watching other people work with them and training horses and training riders. Um, so this is a really big issue. 99% of the time, with 99% of the horses out there, a horse is confused. He's puzzled. He doesn't know what you want. It is extremely rare for a horse to know what you want and flat out say no. And usually the only time that it usually happens is when we ask too much too fast of the horse, which happens very frequently. Humans tend to do that all the time. Um, or, well, and 
when we overface the horse with a task that is too difficult or a task that the horse is afraid to try to complete. So um, I feel that this is a critically important question because I think that um, horses will be treated um, more humanely. I think that we can understand them much better. And I think our training can be much more effective if we teach riders and people who work with horses that the horse is trying his level best to do what we want. But a lot of the time, most of the time, our signals are confusing. We're rewarding him when we shouldn't be rewarding him. We're, we're um, making, you know, there are just all kinds of problems that are going on. Frequently, when I see this kind of problem in a student, I'll stop the student and I'll ask, what is it that you're asking the horse to do? Because I can't figure it out. Mm. I don't know what you're asking this horse to do. And almost inevitably, the student will turn to me and say, I'm not sure. Mm. Well, how can you expect the horse to be sure? Exactly. Yeah. If you don't know precisely what you are asking for, and horses are precision instruments, you know, we have to be really specific about what we're asking them to do. It can't just be a great big thing like, um, be good to me today. Take me for a happy ride. Right. <laughs> you know? right. They need really specific um, um, cues as to exactly what you want them to do. And very often human beings do not provide cues with enough precision or specificity. And we ourselves often do not know exactly what we are asking the horse to do. And, and we can be inconsistent too. I think oh, that's because we're so verbal, right? So it'd be like, oh, you know, let's go over here. And the horse is like, your body language doesn't say to go. Or the last time you asked me to go, you asked that you kicked me. And this time now you're clucking at me or right. so that consistency is what really builds it in. And that can be hard for people. I, it certainly can be hard for me, but I, I see it in students quite often too, who are sincere, good students. Sure. But this idea of, well, why was that important? It seems like such a small thing. And I think sometimes people go, well, it's a big animal. So the signals can be really big yes. and, and or they can be broad. And it's like, yes. not really. Yeah. No, not at all. But I, I agree with you. I think that's one of the, the most important issues that people assume that because horses are so big, that they're not terribly sensitive. They're not terribly precise. Um, about things and you can train them in broad strokes and you can't it just doesn't work right that makes total sense and uh, the same student had asked basically too for example um, she's heard people say a lot oh, the horse is blowing me off you know I've asked him to do something and the horse is blowing me off and it's like my my perspective on that of course is that that's not how horses do it. Like they don't go, I'm going to blow off Janet today. That's oh. not what, that's not the thing. No, that's but not what happens. That's <laughs> not what happens. And it goes back to what are you asking? And also not to bring, I think, and this is like, we all feel emotional about our horses. We love our horses. I mean, we're passionate about our horses. We bring them into our lives for that reason. But sometimes we can make the mistake of, of overlaying emotion on a situation that is not 
at all. They don't match at all. And no. so. No, and usually that only gets us in more trouble when we for sure. do that. Um, I will say, you know, I know that people have this problem very frequently. And I would say that one of the best things you can do for your horse, if the horse is kind of uh, resistant to what you're trying to get them to do is divide the task into smaller steps. Mm -hmm. So just take whatever it is you're asking the horse to do, just back up for a moment and ask the horse to do one quarter of that. Mm -hmm. If he does it, reward him. Tell, right. yes, tell him, yes, yes, that's exactly what I want you to do. And then you can go ahead and ask for a little more out of that task. But very often what happens is that we just haven't divided the task down into small enough baby steps. Um, for the horse to fully understand. And sometimes, yes, they've done it before, but that's okay. We don't all learn every single thing on the very first trial. No, and I think it gets back to thinking like, well, this is easy. This should be easy for you. I'm just asking you to do this simple thing and not seeing it again from the horse's perspective. Right. And, um, and that to the horse, that might actually be something that's more complicated than what we, what, what we realize. So um, yeah, this is also related in some ways too. I feel like that a lot of times people will say that this horse does not have a good work ethic. And, um, the way that I think of that, and I could be wrong, I'm just happy to be wrong and, and let you tell me that. But the way I think of that is that again, usually it might be a confusion about something. It might be that, um, how the person is asking. Also, some horses are, it depends on how they've been trained to respond to this idea of what is the work that we do together. And so that's always my, my take on it. I work again with the war horses. They have too much work ethic in the sense that they'll be very stoic and they'll be like, this is the job. The answer is 17. It's like, no, no, there's other answers. And they're like, no, like this is the answer. And you have to sometimes kind of break down their work ethic and let them know that work can be this more uh, puzzle-based pleasant thing that we do together. That's a little bit different question. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, it bothers me when I hear people refer to a horse having a work ethic. Um, I think it is inaccurate. I think it's unfair to the horse. Um, it often leads to punishment or harsh treatment that is completely unwarranted. Um, Horses do not have work ethics of any kind. That's a human trait. Um, I think there are several issues that cause people to make the mistake of blaming a horse for any sort of work ethic, where it's you know not a good work ethic or too good of a work ethic or what you know any of that kind of stuff. Um, first item I think is that we have to remember that individual horses and certain breeds of horses have different energy levels. And when it comes to breed, those energy levels are literally bred into the horse over hundreds of years of selective breeding. There's nothing the horse can do to change that. He has no control over that, zero. So, um, there's only so much that a horse can do about his energy level. And there's only so much that a trainer can do about that horse's energy level. 
And I much prefer the term energy level to work ethic, because mm -hmm. I think that's what we're really talking about. We're talking about the fact that some horses come, you know, bright, eager and ready to go into the arena or on the trail or wherever it is that they're working. And others are a whole lot quieter and calmer, maybe a little bit, you know, lazy. They, they don't see the need to rush around that's really energy level mm -hmm. I think um I think a, a, another issue here is that at least some of the time and I suspect often horses get assigned to the wrong discipline mm. oh. so I hear people talk for, just for example, it comes up in every discipline you can think of. But for, for an example, sometimes a reigning horse, a horse that's being trained to be a reigning horse will be criticized for being lazy. Too slow, lazy, doesn't have the get up and go, bad work ethic. And um, maybe that horse's energy level is saying that she needs to be a Western pleasure horse instead. She'd be great at that. You want a nice, calm, low energy kind of horse for that particular discipline. And the same is true in all disciplines. I see it, it all over horse sports. And I just think that um, we need to be more careful and more understanding about assigning a particular horse to a particular discipline. Um, I don't assign a horse to a discipline based on what its owners want. Yeah. Uh, I assign the horse to a discipline based on that horse's traits and temperament and abilities and motivations. And I really think that that's a more fair way to go about it. Um, a lot of people ask, well, then what do you tell the client who wants a reigning horse? You know, and basically what you tell them is, Let's go buy you a reigning horse. But this isn't it. This, this one here is a horse that is telling you in a million different ways that she doesn't want to be a reigning horse. She wants to be a different kind of horse. Mm -hmm. And she should have the right to do that. Um, a, a third issue here is that many horses are bored. So I think the, the terminology for the work ethic sometimes comes down to the fact that a horse is experiencing boredom. I think too often nowadays we drill train mm -hmm. our horses when in fact they need some cross training in other areas. They need it if, they're, if it's a horse that uh, is worked in the arena all the time. Maybe she needs to go out for a trail ride a couple times a week. If it's a horse that's worked in the round pen all the time, maybe he needs to go in the arena and do something completely different. If it's a horse who never works with poles, maybe he needs to work with poles once in a while. You know, just to throw out some, something new to the horse to kind of capture his interest a little bit and get him to say, oh, huh, you know, that was kind of interesting. Um, that makes a lot of and, sense. Yeah. And I think finally, um, fourth, we need to recognize our own responsibility to motivate the horse. In my opinion, that's a trainer's primary responsibility is to motivate the horse to want to perform 
motivate her interest in the activity and motivate her desire to perform it. And, and then I think when that happens, I think we really don't have very many problems that we could attribute to a so-called work ethic. And we and our horses then are working together as a team um, much, much, much more um, comfortably. And I think that goes back to something that I find really important in any kind of you know, successful relationship with a horse, whether you're training the horse or riding the horse or whatever it is, just groundwork, is to take the individual horse's nature into account. And I do see that quite a bit, like what you're saying. It's like, well, I, I want a reigning horse and I got this horse and she's bred to rein, and so let's go. And that horse wants to be something else. Now, this is something I'm pretty sensitive to because when I first was running the charity many years ago, we were just adopting out a lot of horses. Uh, we would get young sound ones and we would just adopt them out pretty easily without much work going into them. And I learned pretty quickly to really respect what preferences the horse was showing, each individual yeah. horse was showing. So we had one horse come in who was built to be a jumper, had the confirmation for it, was very sound, just gorgeous. And that horse loved to trail ride and he did not like to particularly you know, throw himself over. He was just not interested. And it was a little bit awkward from a charity perspective because we had to kind of very gently deflect people who were like, well, I, I want to adopt him and give him a great home as a jumper. And we're like, we're pretty sure he's not going to be successful. But we didn't want to make them feel like we were telling them that they were wrong about their choice. It was very awkward, you know, and he ended up going to a trail riding home because I'm very diplomatic and skilled at that. But we, we've just figured out that over time that if you don't take your individual horse's nature into account, you're going to run into those problems like you, you mentioned, Dr. Jones, and you're doing the horse a disservice because the horse is expressing a preference that they'll be wonderful at. And so maybe that's not what you want to do, but you can help that horse get to the right owner or to the right discipline. And that is no, uh, that's no failure on your part or the horse's part. No, it's not. I, I, I agree completely. And a disservice is the perfect word for that. I really think it's true. And not only can you get a horse like that to the right owner, to, you know, to someone who wants to do what the horse is good at doing, but you can also go out and you can find there are, you know, millions and millions of horses out there and it's possible to go out and find exactly the kind of horse that will be motivated and will be wonderful at the particular discipline that you want to participate in and you'll both be happier then right and it's a win-win I think some people feel like too maybe that they have to make it work or they have to maybe they don't perceive it this way but you know internally like I have to prove that I can make this happen and making things happen with horses is not a good approach in, from my perspective. Well, you're just, we're gonna make this happen. And it's like, horses don't respond well to that. And it's no. also inadvertently a bit disrespectful. Again, you don't, you're not meaning to be that way, of course, but um, so. Yeah, force, force never works. No, 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 not at all. Not with people either, surprisingly. No, it doesn't. It, it doesn't really work. Um, here's a, a quick question here uh, on treat feeding. I think this is a classic question that people have a lot. It is. Yeah. It's a big thing. So does treat feeding by hand generally create a lack of respect or boundaries with most horses, or is it purely based on each individual horse's temperament? 
and on how and when the handler chooses to give the treats. In other words, how skilled is the trainer or the handler in how they, they do that? That was a question for multiple people, yeah. The skill of the handler is a big part of that. Um, there are things that you can do uh, in feeding a horse treats um, that will reduce the amount of problems that you have. But in general, for most horses and most people, it does cause problems. Um, it tends usually to cause problems on the ground of nudging, pushing, nipping. Um, and in addition, it causes problems of taking attention away from the human handler and onto the treats. Mm. <laughs> it's exactly what we don't want to do. We want the horse's attention on us, not on the treats. And so, um, so I have a number of, of comments about treats. Um, people often tell me that they feed their horses treats and have no problem with this. You know, they, this is a really common thing that I hear that I feed my horse treats all the time and he never nudges me or nips or bothers me about it at all. So we usually do, I usually encourage them to do a little experiment with me. And uh, if, you know, if we're there with the horse, and um, so I usually ask them, well, how often do you give this horse treats? And people come up with different uh, numbers, but let's just suppose to make this a simple example. Um, let's just suppose it's, well, you know, maybe every three minutes. <laughs> but, you know, while I'm tacking him up and while I'm getting him out of the pasture and also, I guess, you know, maybe every three minutes I might give him a treat. And so then I ask them to show me what happens. Let's just do a little test. See what happens if you don't offer this horse a treat for say 15 minutes. Usually by the end of that time period, the horse is practically knocking them down. <laughs> right. So very often when people say, I don't have a problem feeding my horse treats. It's because they're feeding the horse at just the intervals that the horse has come to expect. I used one that was a really fast interval, although I have seen people feed treats even faster than every three minutes. Wow. Yeah, but um, I mean, you know, let's suppose you fed a horse a treat every half an hour or something. So then the, then the test would be, all right, let's go for two hours and see what happens. Um, so it only seems like there's no problem when you keep the treats coming, in right. a which, which is a problem if, you know, if you can't stop it, then you have, yes. you and have by is, definition a problem. a problem. You should be able to stop at any moment for any length of time and have absolutely no problem with your horse bugging you like you're a candy machine. Right. And there's a really good reason. And you've all read the book. So I know that you. You've read the chapter about training by reward, and, um, and, and you all know that I use treats very sparingly. And the reason for that is that an edible treat has tremendous power, but its power gets wasted if you use it all the time. Mm -hmm. You have to save some of that power. And there is a very specific neuroscientific reason for this. Dopamine release occurs when we give a horse or a dog or anybody treats um, or rewards. And 
So dopamine release is very helpful for training because it strengthens connections mm -hmm. uh, much more strongly than if we did not have the dopamine release. But there's another thing about dopamine release that nobody really talks about. And that is that dopamine release is dependent on surprise. Ah. If you treat too often, or if you use treats as lures, there is no surprise. The lure, the horse can see the lure, so right. there's no problem there. I mean, it's clearly a lure, not a reward. And if it's being used as a lure, or if it's just used too often, you remove the power of surprise. And at that point, you are wasting your training power. Oh. So in my opinion, it's best to save your training power for challenging behaviors that the horse really has some trouble learning. And then when the horse does learn a challenging behavior and you give the horse an edible treat, it makes a huge effect. Oh. At that point, the horse is like, whoa, I have never gotten anything this good. I must have really done something. I'm going to remember this. I'm going to remember yeah. what I just did. And, you yeah. know, the, the scholars who are on this call, like you're hearing like, you know, laughter and chuckles in the background and nodding because, you know, everyone's been there. I am known as a treat Nazi. So, and part of it again is, you know, I've seen a lot of problems, you know, again, nice people, nice horses yeah. that being misapplied and, you know, and then also sometimes horses that come off the track, they get hand-fed peppermints and things at the track. And they also sometimes are, they're encouraged to be pushy on the ground because they look more, uh, they look more on their toes and they'll encourage people to bet on them. So there's, these are the first things that we undo. We go, Hey, you know, this is what you, you're used to. We do it differently here. We're very supportive. Then I have found that removing treats is just a very helpful part of that. It but is. when I, when I do give treats, it's a big deal. And that's exactly how I do it too. If I, I mean, I only give a treat on a really important behavior, a, a behavior that is really pretty difficult for a horse to do. But if that horse has learned to do that and performs that behavior for me, and if I have decided I'm going to give this horse an edible treat, it's going to taste good. I'm not just going to give him some, you know, little tiny. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right, right, It's yeah. going to be gourmet. You can, only, you can only afford to do that if you don't treat very often. And remember, too, I hope everyone, I think you all would know because you've read the book, that um, I'm not talking about withholding non-edible rewards. Right. Those I give very freely and liberally. So, you know, patting your horse, pra praising your horse, giving your horse a, a rest on a loose rein for a few minutes, all of those kinds of things. Use those all the time. They work really beautifully. They're wonderful. But when it comes to edible treats, just be real careful about how and when you use those. That makes sense to me. And um, I'm going to go into the next question, which is a little bit related, which is you had mentioned in, in your book, and it's a great principle that teaching good behavior is so much easier than unteaching bad behavior or bad patterns, maybe as a way to put that a little bit better. Um, and 
most trainers do seem to be focused more on the latter, which is, you know, unteaching or, you know, getting, getting rid of things that you don't want. And my, this is my question. So what happens when you have a horse that comes in and they have, they have a, a behavior or something that you would like to, you would like to slowly extinguish. Um, and they also have an area where they're completely unschooled and it's an opportunity to teach them something positive, right? To teach a, a good behavior. Do you, and I know this is also very individualistic. I immediately caveat that because um, every horse is different, but in general, do you recommend, or do you see it's typically more supportive to focus on the behavior you'd like to slowly extinguish or to focus more on the opportunity to create, a, uh, to teach a, a new behavior? And I'm thinking of Shadow, the, the horse in your book too, is something that kind of got me thinking about this as well, because it seemed like with Shadow, there was this very specific behavior, but you also were teaching that horse many other things too. Yes. yes. So. Um, Every horse is unique, so you have to, you know, alter your technique depending on the particular horse. But in general, what I always try to do is set horses up for successful positive behavior so that you can reward them. And I especially do that when the horse is new to me because I want to teach that horse that I am a person the horse can trust, that I'm there to offer guidance and comfort to this horse, that I am basically um, going to shepherd this horse through this human world that is so bewildering and scary, and that he can look to me um, for help whenever he needs help. And so I find that the best way to begin um, letting a horse know about that is to um, find positive behaviors that he already knows and uh, reward him for those and um, set him up for positive behavior. Um, nobody performs well under constant criticism. Right. And I think that's even true for our horses, that we need to remember that um, it's very difficult to continue performing, especially something that is difficult and challenging. And we have to remember these are prey animals. Right. Almost everything we ask them to do is difficult and challenging. Um, and so I think that the, the, the kind of attitude that many people have where it's just constantly, um, no, that's not what I asked for. No, that's not it either. Uh, no, that's not right. No, 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 no. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Uh, <laughs> I think we need to be telling our horses yes a few times every single session when we work with them. And yes, I have worked with many very, very difficult horses. I specialized in green and difficult horses for many, many years. And so I, I understand what I'm saying there. And I know that sometimes it's really hard, but I've never yet met a horse that I couldn't find in an hour, at least one good thing that that horse knew how to do. And so if that's the only thing I can find, I'm gonna to go to that behavior first and work on that first and try to begin to show the horse that maybe um, 
I might be a little bit different than the people he has worked with in the past and that he can trust me. And of course, it takes a long, I mean, it takes you know, a long, long time to truly develop that bond of trust. But you have to start right at the very beginning. And I find the best time to start is the moment you have the new horse. Um, that's a time when he's a little bit uh, unstable, a little insecure. He isn't sure what's going on. And he's looking for help. So we can be that help. So that, that would be kind of the thing that I would do. Um, I think that the reason that bad behavior is hard to unteach is that it has um, usually been accidentally reinforced or rewarded in some way. So the connection is fairly strong with the bad behavior. Whereas with a brand new behavior, um, you've got a little bit more of a blank slate with the horse on that particular lesson, and you don't have to deal with thing, bad things that have already been reinforced in that horse's mind. Yeah, you can lay, you're laying fresh track at that point. So exactly. you're just, so you can just be the one to reinforce. I often find too that, let's say you have a horse that has, you know, behavior that you'd like to, you know, redirect or however you'd like to put that. Uh -huh. And, and I, instead of saying no, unless it's a dangerous behavior, obviously that's, you know, yeah, you, can, you cannot run me over. That's a hard no. That's always going to be a no yeah. or whatever it is. But assuming we're just talking about something more, you know, mundane, um, I will encourage the horse to, you know, redirect that into something else. And if they try like that, and then try is a pretty loaded word, but if they try, if like, let's say, let's say they, they have a habit of, um, swinging their hindquarters to you. It's not necessarily aggressive, but it could be if they got scared at the wrong time. Right. So I'm going to encourage them to, again, kind of move that outside shoulder out and move and bend a certain way. And if they shift their weight and come over a little bit, but they haven't fully swung the hindquarters, but they're about to, I might release or reward that a little bit and say, Hey, that was a really good try. That was, you're getting warmer, like yeah. you're getting warmer and uh, something along those lines. And I'll also will do recess. So if we've kind of processed through something and, you know, they, the horse has tried, has made a little progress. It's not, it's not that we're doing the most beautiful leg yield, but, you know, we he tried, he, it was a little awkward, but he, he didn't, he didn't lean against my left leg as much. And he's, right. he, then we'll go do something that he loves to do, walk over poles, or exactly. um, I'm working with a, a mare now and her owner and this, this little mare, she loves cones. And so we go, we go, well, let's do the figure eight around the cones. Like that's just her parade moment. She yeah. loves it. And we build that in, you know, frequent recesses. So I, I think all of that is really helpful. I just, I really like to focus on the positive with horses. It keeps them more motivated. They're willing to learn. And um, I think that um, the, the kind of, you know, the, this is a lot of what we're talking about here, I think is the art of horse training in a sense of knowing when to work on what. Right. When do we ask for this? And when do we hold off a little bit and wait? But I think it's always helpful to, um, to understand that our, there is a learning process, just like we go through as human beings. The first time you ask me to hop over a hurdle, I'm sorry, I am not going to be good at that. No. I'm probably going to catch my toe on the thing and fall flat on my face or 
something's something's going to go wrong. I'm sure it's not going to be graceful. It's not going to be coordinated the first few times I do it. And depending on the particular person or the particular horse, it might take us many, many trials. It might take me a thousand trials <laughs> to become coordinated and graceful jumping over a hurdle. And so whatever it is that we're teaching the horse, I think we really have to kind of back off sometimes and give, you know, give them time to make a few mistakes and to learn a little bit. We all learn from making mistakes. It's not, a mistake is not always a bad thing. It's just a mistake. And so I think a green horse or a young horse or one who has had a difficult background um, really ought to be given um, as much leeway as possible. As you said, within the confines of not going over the boundary to dangerous. Right, right. But, you know, the first few times that a horse steps over a pole or, or you know, takes that first little turn on the haunches that's going to eventually become a, a reigning spin, he's just learning. It's just the beginning. We have many years. It takes many, many years to train a good horse to to, to do the kinds of sports that we like to see them do. So. And I think you really, you know, hit it on the head when you said that you want the horse to look you up as the teacher and the guide. If we can, if we can teach the horse that you can rely on us when you're confused, we will help you. It, yeah. it might not be, it might not be the help that you, you envision, but we're not going to put a lot of treats in your mouth and, you know, <laughs> turn you out and take the saddle off, but you can count on us to help you. We will help you. I'm here to help. Uh, I have a friend who is a really good horsewoman and what she'll say, when she's working with a young horse or a horse that's a little troubled. He gets a little confused. He gets that kind of look and she'll go, it's okay. I'm going to show you. Let me show you. Let me show you what I want. And she kind of, that's her tone. Let me show you. I'm here to help. And even if it's something that, you know, might be a little bit flamboyant, maybe the horse is a little bit excited. That's her tone. Uh, both literally and, and metaphorically. And it, it really, the horses almost inevitably start looking her up very rapidly because they, that tone is very, and her skill level too, of course. Yeah, yeah. But, that, that attitude, I think, um, really helps horses. And then being reliable in that mm -hmm. attitude so that the horse learns over time that, yes, this person, I'm going to be able to come to her and here is how she is likely to respond to me. And she's helpful. She's going to help. And right. I, I think that that's really important. I often, um, you know, liken horses in a human world to how we would feel if we were just plopped down in a foreign country where we didn't know the language or the currency or the food or anything at all. We didn't know anybody there that we would probably wish that we had some kind of a guide who mm -hmm. could be reliable, who we could go to for help when we had questions. And I, I think that that's a very um, intelligent and humane way to go about training horses that we have to remember these are prey animals and they do need to be taught. We can't just expect we have to teach. There's a big difference here. 
So that's my opinion anyway. Uh, I think it's a very valued and uh, highly esteemed opinion, given the fact that you are a brain scientist and a horse trainer, who's, again, probably the only person who could have written the book and answered all of our questions. We are actually slightly over an hour so, which is shocking as always, because it goes so fast, but I know. it really does. And um, it's just so much fun to talk to you, but it's also so educational. I mean, I'm sure I've been taking notes. I know I, I see everybody on the screen, like most of you have been writing at some point or another. And so I'd really like to thank you, Dr. Jones. This was super incredibly helpful for me and the other scholars. And we just appreciate your your graciousness, sharing your knowledge and answering our specific questions. And for all of my listeners, you know, in the US and abroad, if you haven't read this book, you have to read this book. It is just so, uh, it's so full of information that will help you understand your horse better and also help you understand yourself a little better. Because I found the differences between people and horses very informative to me just the things that I hadn't thought about that I do automatically, like how much I rely on vision. You know, I don't even think about that. And it changed my perspective on how can I be a better, you know, leader? How can I be a more trustable, trusting teacher for this horse? So thank you so much, Dr. Jones. And you're welcome. It's, it's really been my pleasure. And I'm seeing a lot of little chat comments from other yes. people here that I really appreciate. So, um, I am delighted to have been invited to come and talk with you. And I encourage you all on your, um, uh, your goals for working really well with your horses. So good luck. Thank you. Thank you very much. As you can tell from this interview, Dr. Jones is genuinely delightful to talk with. Not only is she a brilliant brain scientist and a extremely experienced horse trainer, she is somebody who just genuinely loves horses, enjoys talking about them, and has such vivid anecdotes and illustrations of the scientific principles in her book. It's just a pleasure to listen to her. She is so generous with her time. And I know that I felt as though I've learned so much from these two interviews with her as I have from maybe years and years of reading more typical books about physiology or psychology or horse training. So I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as we did in Scholars. If you're interested in learning more about Horsewise Scholars, you can go to our website, horsewisecoach.com scholars. It's a super fun educational subscription group where we look at the individual podcast guests on my podcast, call them back for private interviews and Q&As with the group, and we study a particular horsemanship topic every month, guided and taught by me. As always, thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.